This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Mauro Guillen, a Wharton professor of management at Wharton and director of the Lauder Institute, joins us to discuss two significant developments in international banking. First, the chairman of Banco Santander, Emilio Botin, has died at age 79. Over the past two, three decades, he was a key force that transformed the Spanish lender into one of Europe's largest banks. And second, uh, not entirely unexpected, his daughter was named to replace him. Anna Patricia Botin had been head of Santander in the UK. She's 53 years old, and she becomes the fourth generation to head up the bank over more than 100 years. So welcome, Mauro. You're uniquely qualified to discuss these developments because you co-wrote a book about Santander not long ago, Building a Global Bank, the Transformation of Banco Santander. So let's start with Emilio Botin's career at Santander and then discuss the future under his daughter's leadership. Uh, For those who may not know about Botin's career, he was a highly respected person in Spain. Some reports noted that the public often listened to his rare pronouncements about the economy much more raptly than they would listen to politicians. And there was even a hedge fund uh, trader in London who was reported in one of the papers today as saying that he was the unofficial king of Spain. So perhaps, Mara, you could start with just putting his career in perspective, how much he meant to the banking industry, to Spain, uh, to, to global banking in general. Well, he was uh, certainly a, you know, very, very successful banker. I mean, he inherited from his father a bank that was, you know, not even the largest in Spain. It was tiny in Spain. It was uh, only, uh, you know, 260th in the world. And today the bank is one of the top 10 banks in the world. It's the largest in the Eurozone. Uh, so from that point of view, he is certainly somebody who will come down in history as one of the uh, greater the greatest bankers of the uh, 20th century, second half of the 20th century. And, uh, uh, you know, he was a great uh, strategist, and, uh, but also a, a great tactician because he often, you know, caught uh, competitors by surprise, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, it is also true, of course, that uh, in his home country, in Spain, he was, um, you know, a powerful figure. Uh, you know, running the largest bank in the country and uh, having been the, the banker uh, at, at the helm of a, of a major bank for the longest period of time, right? Because he's been the executive chairman uh, since the 1980s. So that's, uh, you know, a very long time. Uh, so he is, a, I think, a, a very important figure in, in global banking and, uh, and also, in, of course, in Spanish economic and uh, financial life. Now, his daughter, Ana Patricia Botin, was just today appointed as his successor as chairman or chairperson, chairwoman. And uh, there were worries uh, before the daughter was appointed by some investors that the family had too much influence in the bank, even though they've, they've run it so successfully, and even, uh, uh, but partly because they had only, uh, I think, a 2%, 2% equity stake in the bank. But uh, apparently there were, there were many, many supporters of the family on the board and, and in, in positions of power. And so uh, I guess you could say it was a shoe-in that w- she, would, she would take over his spot. Is that right? Uh, well, yes. I mean, Ana Patricia has uh, 
you know, a long history at the bank as well. Uh, she obviously belongs to a different generation, so she's in her mid-50s. Uh, she's very cosmopolitan. She speaks several languages. She's worked in many different areas. Uh, she's uh, run a bank. But, uh, of course, there's always this lingering doubt as to whether, you know, she has made it to the top of uh, one of the most important financial institutions in the world because of her last name or because of her merits. And this is something that, uh, you know, no matter how hard she tries, it will never go away, right? But let me point out that there is a, you know, some pluses from having her at the helm. I mean, one of them is stability. So you know that uh, the current uh, corporate governance structure, which has worked relatively well, uh, will remain in place. Uh, you know, this bank, Santander, has weathered the financial crisis relatively well. It didn't need any government money. Uh, the fact that it was diversified geographically across both developed countries in Europe and uh, emerging economies in Latin America actually helped it, um, you know, overcome the uh, the impact of the crisis in ways that many other, you know, banks in the world couldn't, right? So there's always going to be this question uh, about the role of the Botin family. Uh, I would say that uh, rather than thinking about the fact that they have only two percent uh, or of the equity in the bank. I think it's more important to know that most of the wealth of the family is invested in Santander shares. So that means that if they're running the bank in some capacity, uh, that means that the objectives are aligned. That is to say that they want the bank to do well. And I guess this is why most uh, shareholders, especially the institutional shareholders, uh, don't mind the fact that uh, the bank has been run by, you know, uh, grandfather, father, and uh, now daughter uh, over the last uh, 50 or 60 years. Right. And 2% of the 10th largest bank in the world is, uh, is, is quite a lot of money anyway. It is quite a lot of money. Uh, but again, what's relevant is that they, uh, most of their wealth is in Santander shares. That's, I think, very, very important to keep in mind. Uh, another report I saw today, which I thought was really interesting, argued that Donna Patricia now would be could be considered the third most powerful woman in finance in the world behind Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde at the IMF. Janet Yellen, of course, the, the chair of uh, of the Fed. What's your thought about that? Well, you know, we are going through a generational change. Uh, we are going through, you know, a uh, process, I think, in society and uh, in business, in politics, whereby more and more women are reaching top positions. There's still far more men, of course, in positions of power around the world than women. But we're starting to see change. And uh, it is true that in the world of finance, um, you know, this will be the first woman to be at the helm of uh, one of the uh, largest uh, financial institutions in the world. Because the other two examples that you mentioned, Yellen and Lagarde, uh, they're actually running uh, well, the Fed and the uh, IMF, respectively. So it's not a, a bank, right, that they're running. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we actually have many more women at, uh, at the top in, in technology, in a GM now, uh, several other companies around the world, uh, Pepsi. Um, so I think financial services uh, industry needs to, you know, change the same way that society is changing and other industries are changing, right? Uh, it has always been a very male-dominated environment, and, uh, well, uh, this is, I think, a step in the right uh, direction. Now, uh, she comes in as the fourth generation uh, to be largely running the bank. Uh, the family's run it very successfully, and 
could you give us a sense of what is it about their business model that propelled them from 260th in the world to in the top 10? Well, essentially, uh, this is a retail bank that, uh, you know, uh, runs a very extensive franchise or network of franchises in different parts of the world. So they have a lot of branches, they have a lot of employees, uh, they have a lot of depositors, they have a lot of customers. And uh, their business model is to stay focused on uh, bread and butter uh, banking, right? So although they do have some limited investment banking operations and some limited private banking operations, they're mostly focused on the commercial business, right, and on retail, uh, both for small firms and for uh, individual customers like uh, yourself or myself. And uh, it is, I think, uh, this focus, uh, this, uh, you know, obsession that they have with, um, you know, holding costs down, with uh, uh, establishing risk assessment systems that will enable them to lend uh, money to those people who deserve it uh, and who can pay the loan back and not to other people who don't have the means to pay the loan back. Um, so it is this uh, focus on all of the good old practices of uh, banking, right, uh, that I think has, uh, is the key to success. The other thing that they have done really well is to incorporate uh, information technologies, especially in the back office. They're very good at that as well. Now, they, uh, you, you alluded to this earlier, but they uh, survived and e- even, you could say, thrived uh, during the financial crisis in a way that very few banks did. Uh, was that because they weren't involved in all the higher risk trading and investment banking and all that and really focused on retail? What were the reasons for that? Yeah, correct. I mean, they were uh, affected a little bit by the financial crisis uh, that started here in the United States uh, in the sense of, uh, you know, that they had uh, some involvement in uh, some of these uh, financial instruments that proved too complex to manage, right, or to assess. Uh, and they also got a little bit into trouble, if you remember, with the mad of, uh, uh, you know, debacle, right? So they, they also were affected by that uh, slightly. But, um, you know, it's a very large bank. So even though they, you know, were exposed, uh, you know, uh, to the tune of a few billion dollars uh, in the crisis uh, from some of these investments, um, the, the bank was big enough and healthy enough to sustain the blow. And uh, the other thing that really helped them was the geographical diversification. So they had, a, of course, at the time of the crisis, a very, very large footprint in Spain and in Portugal uh, and in the U.K. But they also had a very strong presence in economies that continued to grow throughout the crisis, like Brazil or Mexico, uh, in general, Latin America. Uh, so I think these are the factors that helped them uh, weather the crisis quite successfully. And if you remember, uh, not only they didn't shrink during the crisis, but they actually continued making acquisitions during the crisis in 2008 and 2009. So today, uh, given this generational change, uh, can you tell us where was Sander heading, Sander heading as an institution and um, how might that change under Ana Patricia? Yes, well, I think Santander right now was in uh, reorganization mode in the sense of, uh, well, uh, you know, now, as you know, the emerging economies are not growing, especially in Latin America, as much as uh, they were two or three years ago. 
So they were selling some assets, buying some other assets. Uh, they were trying to continue cutting costs, becoming more efficient. They were trying to reorganize themselves for this new world in which it's not clear where the growth is going to be coming from, right? And uh, I think uh, they were also, you know, in the midst of a process to um, continue attracting young talent to the bank and to usher in a new generation. So what we're seeing today uh, in the wake of the um, death of the chairman overnight is a change at the top. But uh, the bank had been, for the last two or three years already, uh, you know, evolving in terms of the, uh, you know, second tier or third tier of managers, right? Um, I think uh, in terms of Anna Patricia and uh, the challenges lying ahead of her, I think by far the most important one is uh, the, uh, uh, how, how the bank can benefit from information technology and from mobility and from this new way of thinking about banking and financial services that is emerging in which non-bank institutions such as PayPal uh, or now Google, right, with Wallet, uh, are playing an increasingly important role. So I think uh, that's going to be her biggest challenge is the challenge of this new generation is not so much to enter new markets, but rather to look for ways to engage the younger generation as bank customers. And in that, I think technology will play a very important role. Do they have uh, much of a presence in Asia, or are they planning to have much of a presence in Asia? Uh, well, this is a bank that has been very cautious about Asia. As you know, Asia well, it's a, it's a very big place, and uh, uh, with some very big markets like China or India or Indonesia. Uh, and uh, they have uh, established, of course, representative offices and other forms of, uh, of a presence because some of their customers, especially corporate customers, require them to do so. But... Um, they haven't really had a retail presence in the region, and I don't think they're anywhere near to having a retail presence in the region. Um, they now have a um, greater presence in China in terms of wholesale banking and uh, representative banking and, uh, and all of that. They are observing the market. But I think it's very difficult at this moment for a European bank without a tradition of doing business in Asia, like HSBC, for instance, uh, or Barclays, to, to have a major presence in, the, in, the, in that part of the world. I don't think that's you know, the next step that the bank is going to take. I, I think Asia has its own dynamic and has its own banks. Uh, and I don't think that's, uh, you know, a potential growth area for them. Uh, given that uh, growth has slowed in emerging markets, as you mentioned, and in some developed countries and some of their markets, what, where does Santander see growth coming for them in the future? Where are they investing? Yeah, right now they are betting big time on the U.S. market, uh, to be more precise, uh, the uh, eastern seaboard, so the markets between Maine to the north and uh, all the way south to uh, Washington. Uh, if you remember, they acquired um, in steps uh, Sovereign Bank, which uh, has a strong presence in that part of the country. And uh, for the last six or seven years, they managed uh, the Sovereign brand as a separate brand. But about a year ago, they made the decision to abandon to get rid of the sovereign brand and to introduce the Santander brand. And they're opening new branches. They're hiring, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, bankers uh, to staff those branches. And they really want to grow in the market. Uh, they're offering, uh, I think, better service than the average uh, retail American bank. And uh, they're offering very good deals. They're competing on, on price. Uh, 
So uh, I think, uh, you know, right now the bank is very much focused on growth in the United States, again, as a way to maybe catch this uh, recovery that uh, is going on right now in the U.S. economy. What else uh, about this changeover uh, at Santander, generational changeover, uh, would it be important for uh, listeners to know? Well, I think, uh, you know, not just Santander, but all banks, uh, retail banks in the world, especially in the United States, they face a very important problem, which is that younger people now, people in their 20s, their 30s, uh, they really would prefer not to do business with a bank if they can avoid it. Uh, not only they don't trust the banks, and as you know, the reputation of banks has suffered immensely in the wake of the crisis, but also they prefer to use their smartphone. They prefer to use PayPal. They prefer to use Google Wallet. Uh, there's a lot of innovation going on in terms of payments, in terms of uh, how you fund, uh, how you finance your, your your purchases as a consumer. Um, I think that is the challenge for this new generation. They have to, or bankers, they need to understand young people better. They need to be able to leverage technology in a way that they can engage them. And uh, they need to fundamentally rethink their business model, which hasn't changed much over the last, uh, you know, several hundred years, I would say, right? Uh, So they really need to embrace technology and mobility and uh, to rethink the way they reach customers and the way they interact with customers. All right, Mara, thank you very much for taking time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.